this is the very first time in the million year history of our species when everyone has been united against a common enemy. Three weeks ago, there were zero cures and zero vaccines for COVID-19. As of the most recent count, there are 41 that have entered clinical trials. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Now, before we get started with this podcast, big news for all of you who've been following me for several years. As you know, my first book was called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, and it became a runaway hit. It hit number one on Amazon globally, as in becoming number one book in the world for about five days in 2017. Thank you to all of you who supported that book. And because of that, because The Code of the Extraordinary Mind went so far, got translated into 25 language, I got my second book offer. And my second book is called The Buddha and the Badass, and I cannot wait to get it in your hands. Now, The Buddha and the Badass explores one of the things I'm most known for, and that is how do we bring our spiritual nature, the power of our mind, into that place which so far seems to shy away from spirituality, and that is the workplace. You see, so many workplaces are obsessed with productivity hacks and other things to get more done in less time. I believe the ultimate hack is tapping into your spirit or your soul. And so what I do in The Buddha and the Badass is to show you how to unify these two archetypes. First, the archetype of the Buddha, the spiritual master. And second, the archetype of the badass, the person who wants to go out there and shake things and make a dent in the universe and change things. This book is really about channeling your inner Steve Jobs. And if you find these ideas interesting, check out The Buddha and the Badass. Now, that's not all. All this week, as the book launches, the book comes out June 9 by Penguin Random House. All this week, as the book is emerging, if you pre-order, there is a ton of incredible bonuses for you. And, you know, every author says bonuses, but given I have Mind Valley and we produce the number one programs in the world in pretty much every aspect of personal growth, what I'm doing is... I'm going to give away our most expensive program of the year. It's called Be Extraordinary at Work. The program is going to be coming out in July. I'm going to be giving that away. It's a $4.99 program if you buy five copies of the book. So five copies of the book are about just over 100 bucks. Unfortunately, this offer is only valid for those of you in the U.S. and Canada for now. If you are outside the U.S. and Canada, you will have to email. But you will get Mindvalley's most expensive program, be Extraordinary at Work, completely free for five copies of the book. And if you just want one copy, that's not a problem as well. There are other great bonuses. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash Buddha Badass. Again, that's mindvalley.com forward slash Buddha Badass. And I can't wait to get this in your hands. Now, back to the Mind Valley Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mind Valley Podcast. It is an interesting time we're living in. And to help us make sense of this interesting time, on the phone with me right now is Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Vision, as always, it's good to be with you. And Stephen, you know, most people have heard of you. You are one of the most prolific writers of the last decade. You co-authored the book Bold with Peter Diamandis, Abundance with Peter Diamandis. With Jamie Reel, you co-authored Stealing Fire, which became like one of the de facto books to help people understand the altered state economy. And I have personally said that you are the most popular writer in terms of books I have read from any 
single individual in the last 10 years. And many of your books like Bold, Abundance, and Stealing Fire have changed my life. In fact, Stealing Fire inspired me to do a whole AFES festival dedicated to the concept of altered states, and you were a speaker. So anyway, thank you for that big impact you've had on me. That's very sweet of you to say. So in this interesting time, I wanted to bring you on as our guest because you are one of the most brilliant minds I know. And, you know, we've been having these conversations about how to thrive during this time, how to use this time as an opportunity to learn, to grow, to become our best selves, rather than to simply fall prey to fear and uncertainty around us. In one of our conversations, Stephen, we were talking about, you were sharing with me this idea of the three pandemics, and I thought it was so elegant. I wanted you to share it with our audience today. For sure. Thank you. It's a good place to start. But before we begin, let's try to get a sense of where you are and how you're doing. I am in Nevada, in South Lake Tahoe. I'm really good, and I don't think I've ever been so busy. Though I know you can't actually be really good right now, so that's kind of sacrilege. But, you know, social isolation is kind of my middle name. So I get to hang out <laughs> my wife and my dogs and hike in the mountains, which are kind of behind me. Um write a lot and do my absolute best to help when I can. And all those are things that bring a lot of meaning to my life. So I am actually really good, though it's a really difficult, sad time. I know, I know. But I'm super happy you're coping well. And let's talk about this concept of the three pandemics. So we're going to touch a little bit on that because it's an interesting mental model. And then we're going to go into how to unlock hyper-focus and flow states. So you're in for a double treat. So let's start with the first concept, the triple pandemic. So the first pandemic is the one we're all aware of, which is COVID-19. And it's real and it's extremely troubling and everything that that means. The second pandemic was sort of birthed by the first, and it is a pandemic of fear. Everybody's feeling it for very natural, biological, real reasons as well. But the third pandemic is the one that is so interesting to me, and it's the antidote to the first two. And it is a pandemic of cooperation. And I mean that on every level. At a really simple level, Harvard geneticist David Sinclair was being interviewed by Peter Diamandis not a couple of days ago. And David put it really well. He said, this is the very first time in the million year history of our species when everyone has been united against a common enemy. And he is absolutely correct. And this Pandemical cooperation is taking place at a bunch of different levels at a very kind of local, real, touching everyone level. People everywhere are staying home and doing without to protect the old and the weak and the sick. And that is amazing. We are also seeing in every neighborhood in the world, I'm talking to people, as I'm sure you have the globe over, signs going up that say, need anything, need groceries, need medicine, we're here to help we're your neighbors, text this number. And that's everywhere. That's global. That's amazing. But what I'm seeing is at the level of science and technology, I heard an estimate, some people think this is conservative, but there are somewhere between 100 million and 200 million doctors, nurses, scientists, healthcare professionals entirely aimed at this one problem. And the really amazing thing my new book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, talks a lot about the reinvention of healthcare. And that's sort of what we're seeing here. Three weeks ago, there were zero cures and zero vaccines for COVID-19. 
as of the most recent count, there are 41 that have entered clinical trials. People are sharing scientific information, technical information between companies, between scientists, between nations. And in case you haven't figured it out, that is not how things, science is a blood sport. Nobody shares, nobody cooperates. This doesn't happen. And it's happening the globe over. There's a global hackathon to 3D print, right? 3D printing is one of those exponential technologies that is helping accelerate our future. There is a global hackathon to 3D print medical supplies. In Italy, they have figured out how to 3D print respirator valves in an alliance between HP and everybody, including like Airbus, all of these companies that have big industrial 3D printers. They have figured out how to 3D print ventilators, and they're trying to figure out how to do it at scale. 3D printed face masks have been created by 20 different companies, one of them starting with, I believe, Pepsi bottles as feedstock. We're seeing Winsun, which is the Chinese company I wrote about in both Abundance Bold and again in Faster, I believe, that had learned how to print houses, single patently homes in an afternoon in apartment complexes over a weekend. They are now 3D printing quarantine rooms, hospitals. And I could give you a crazy story. I don't know if this is Winsun or somebody else. The day after there were zero deaths in China to prevent further deaths and allow people to go shopping, a 3D printed cashierless grocery store showed up right next to the main hospital in Wuhan, like an Amazon Go store, no cashiers, completely stocked, built in less than a day. So this is the first time in history we're meeting an exponential challenge, and that's what a virus is, right? It grows exponentially with exponential solutions. And I like our chances, is my point. I love that. That gives me so much hope. Stephen, that is the best news I've heard in about a month. So thank you for sharing that. I occupy a weird spot between a lot of different worlds. So I've been lucky enough in a weird way to be a switchboard operator between scientists looking to get to tech executives, looking to get to the government, looking to get to et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you're doing the same thing and right. You're just connecting everybody you possibly can and, you know, working with that Singularity University and Peter, I'm getting to see a lot of this stuff and a lot of it, let me be clear, I do not even understand, right? Like I've seen some complex mapping software to track the virus that I look at and I go, this looks amazing. Let me put you in touch with Facebook and then I'm out. Stephen, let me ask you this. You wrote two books on the future. One is Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. And the other is your most recent book. Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. Bold is the second book in the trilogy. And then the third book in the trilogy is The Future is Faster Than You Think. And then Tomorrowland is my other book on technology. Yeah, they're a trilogy and they're relevant here a little bit to this discussion. I won't linger here, but it's kind of worth knowing this as well. Abundance and Bold is about individual exponential technologies and how people can now use them to solve grand global challenges, right? And exponential technology is anything that doubles on a regular basis, like your cell phone, right? Every 18 months, it gets twice as powerful. The cost stays the same, right? That's an exponential curve. The same curve is showing up all over technology and it's sensors, networks, robotics, artificial intelligence, and so forth, right? And abundance was, hey, we can use these things to tackle grand global challenges, including pandemics, for example, and poverty and healthcare crises and education, et cetera. Bold was the playbook. Here's how you do it. 
faster, which is really relevant here, is about a brand new phenomenon, which is what were formerly independent lines of exponential technology, robotics or artificial intelligence are now starting to converge. And what happens is you get a hole as much greater than the sum of its parts effects, or as Ray Kurzweil has explained, we're going to see 100 years of technological change in the next decade. Right. You've been at the forefront of futurism. Given what you know of these converging exponential technologies, how soon do you think before we find a way to end COVID-19 for good? I have no idea on that question, but here's what I can tell you, which is sort of an answer. The actual scenario of COVID-19, which is a rare, weird, dangerous pathogen showing up out of nowhere and then you know attacking the globe, this is only possible for a very short time frame. And what I mean by that is the healthcare system right now is being totally reinvented. On the front end, first of all, we have biosniffers. David Sinclair, who I mentioned earlier at Harvard, is one of the guys behind one of the companies that makes one of these. These are devices that can basically detect the air in real time for pathogens, bacteria, viruses, etc. Anytime they find something they don't recognize, it is immediately sequenced, DNA, RNA, and fed into a diagnostic AI in the cloud, the same kind of diagnostic AIs that power the Tricorder XPRIZE, which is a medical diagnostic device that is a bunch of sensors the size of a cell phone that can diagnose 50 of the most common ailments. Great sensing technology is coming along. We can sense this stuff on the front end. We can use AI to figure out what it is, sequence it, and start working on antidotes immediately upon recognizing a foreign pathogen. All this is here sort of right now. And the reason we have 41 cures and vaccines in the pipeline is these same processes, minus the bio-swift sniffers. But the back end is where things get really crazy. What is happening now, and it's not here, it's not yet ready for prime time, which is why my answer is delayed and I can't address COVID-19. One of the big issues is we have to test the solutions on animals, on humans. The animal testing is cruel as hell and needs to stop, period. And the human testing is for safety reasons. We are very close to being able to simulate all human biology inside of AI. Quantum brings us even close. Quantum computing brings us even closer to that. Once that happens, it's going to take a little while for us to learn to trust the computers. But once that happens, we can test antidotes, compounds, et cetera, et cetera, in computers at lightning speed. So that allows us to go from foreign pathogen to cure on the market really, really quickly. That's amazing because I know the main delay here is really human testing. And I know in this case, with 40 different potential vaccines out and being tested, the FDA allowed testing to jump directly to testing on humans without pre-testing on animals, Exactly, right? they did. But still, it takes a year. It takes a year to totally see if these vaccines are going to be safe. And you absolutely don't want to screw up, right, as we learned with swine flu. You try to speed this along, you can kill people, and so you don't want to mess with this. The other thing is the testing component on the front end. Do you have the disease itself? We can do that already. Most of the things with things that already can attach to your smartphone, like the portable sensors, in fact, You've probably seen these like old iPhones are being repurposed by hospitals because there are plug-in sensors that can turn them into thermometers, can turn them into all kinds of diagnostic tools. All this stuff is ready for prime time. It's here. 
it's not in your cell phone this generation. It was going to be in your cell phone probably two to three generations from now. But my guess is it's going to show up right away, right? The smartphone is becoming the smart doctor, and that's going to happen a lot faster. So everything that we were talking about, the reinvention, the entire medical treatment, the front-end diagnostics, all the way to the back end with drugs we take, and we thought it would take a decade. And you know, the joke Peter and I have had since you know this started is we wrote a book called The Future is Faster Than What You Think, and it turns out the future is faster than we thought, too. Right. That's amazing. But it's so exciting to know that that is coming to us, that that is going to be a reality. Okay. So it may still take a year before a vaccine is found, but that gives us so much hope. And we know that this situation that's affecting the world right now is something that in the near future, we may be able to avoid for good. Let's put a caveat on that. You know, if we get airborne Ebola, you know what I mean? Like something that moves incredibly fast and is, you know, fatal in 80% of anybody who gets it. That's a totally different story. That's the apocalyptic scenario, I think, at least for a little while until our technology catches up with that. But again, our technology has been turbo boosted like never before with this pandemic. So we will be prepared, I think. Beautiful. This is such an optimistic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing. So one of your latest work is zerotodangerous.com. Those of you who are listening to this at home might want to go check it out. Now, let me tell you why I'm going to be asking you about this, Stephen. So you're working on teaching people hyper-focus, how to get into hyper-focus states, how to get into flow states. I remember attending a seminar by you in San Francisco. One of the most interesting things I saw about your work was that you had done a study with Google employees, and you were able to get them into flow states something like 35 to 70% more frequently. Am I getting that right? 35 to 80 Yeah, that was with my older company. I did it with the Flow Genome Project with Jamie. Since starting the Flow Research Collective and really going in as deep as we've gone, Zero to Dangerous, which is our flagship training, we're getting consistent to 70 to 80% boost in flow. That's amazing. It's not amazing. And that's the bigger point. What do you mean it's not amazing? So here's what I mean. Almost all of peak performance is about getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's what peak performance is. And the reason is, in the field of peak performance, very often people figure out what works for them, and they try to teach it to other people, and it doesn't work for anybody. And the reason is, peak performance is very individual, and it depends on personality. Personality depends on genetics and early childhood experience. And so what works for me, I always say, is almost guaranteed not to work for you. Biology, the things that evolution created, are the things that evolution designed to work for everyone. And they work in a very mechanistic way. And if you understand the mechanism, like if you understand how an engine works, you know how to make that engine work a lot better. What was difficult with peak performance is we had been trying to train it from the psychology up till the early thousands because the neuroscience wasn't there. Since then, brain imaging has advanced. We can look under the hood. We can say, oh, this is where it's coming from. So that's all the work that I've sort of built on to design the training. So it's not that our Kung Fu is so great. It's that your design, you've been optimized by evolution to perform at your best. And let me come back to that in half a second. I'll finish the sentence, and I want to come back to that in terms of COVID-19. We've all been optimized by evolution performing our best. It works at scale. Flow is ubiquitous. It shows up in everyone. It's universal. It was what evolution designed to enable peak performance. When you figure out how it works, you can very easily make it work for you. That's why it's not amazing. 
the science itself, like the biology itself is astounding. But here's the cool thing. Flow was designed to solve a particular kind of problem, which is, wow, there's a lot of novel, salient, crazy, new information in the environment right now, and I have to respond, right? This could mean I just realized I'm out of resources and I have to go on a hunt over the hill to try to find some fruit or catch some game, or it could mean a tiger just jumped out of the bush, et cetera, et cetera. But we are designed to adapt to immediate crisis and perform at our best, which is to say like human biology is actually built to handle. So another reason I like our chances we are built to handle these exact kinds of situations we're up against. Now, it's why our species has thrived so well for so long. Because as you pointed out at the beginning of this, they always say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Crisis is a phenomenal opportunity for growth and for all kinds of opportunities. And the best thing about this, here's the craziest thing that you may not know, is because of all the reasons I've just talked about, when we are in a crisis, learning rates massively accelerate. It has to do with kind of the way we generate fear, which is mostly norepinephrine, but that can amp up learning rates. As long as you can keep your fear under control a little bit, and we can talk about how to do that, there is no better time to train up new habits because you're already primed for learning. You're primed for habit creation. Neuroepinephrine, also called noradrenaline, substance that is released predominantly from the ends of sympathetic nerve fibers, and that acts to increase the force of skeletal muscle contraction and the rate and force of contraction of the heart. And you're saying it's released when we are fearful, but it accelerates learning. Neurochemicals are multi-tools. They do a lot of different jobs in the brain. So what happens when information comes into the brain, this isn't exactly how it works, but let's just say we're talking about Information is coming in through the eyes. It gets passed to the thalamus first. That's the brain's relay station. From there, it goes to the lateral amygdala, which is the very front end of the amygdala. The amygdala is our threat detector, our danger detector. But when it hits the front end, you get a squirt of norepinephrine. And at that point, the norepinephrine, once it gets into your amygdala, it becomes fear and anxiety. The emotion we respond to is fear and anxiety, or it can also become excitement. It's the same signal, depends on how it's processed. But at the point it hits the lateral amygdala, all it's doing is saying, hey, there's novel salient information in the environment, something new, something possibly dangerous or interesting, an opportunity is going on, and you're probably going to want to remember this later. So I'm priming the system to remember this later. I love it. This is, again, such positive news. Now, the question I wanted to ask you, Stephen, comes from this. And just yesterday, I had Nuri Yao on the podcast, and I asked him a similar question. Now, the question came because two days ago, I was doing a live Zoom call with 900 people, 900 of our customers here at Mind Valley, our top students. And I asked him, what are the biggest things that's affecting you right now? And two things came up tied for number one. And interestingly, it was overwhelmingly in these two categories out of eight categories I put up in the Zoom poll. Now, the first category was fears about money, about abundance, about losing your job or the possibility of losing your job. Okay, that's very legit in the current economy. And it was 29% of the people listening. But tied at 29% was the following lack of focus and procrastination. And I was really puzzled about this. And I guess that's because I'm just a hyper-focused person. But I was puzzled that, number one, tied with money, 
in this time when we're going through a recession was people who were experiencing lack of focus and procrastination. Now, Stephen, why do you think that is? You're asking a hysterically good question because the answer is once again, norepinephrine. Let me walk you through a couple of ideas and you'll totally get this in a second and then we can talk about how to fix it. Let's back up one step and talk about where the pandemic of fear is coming from. There are a number of sources. There are the real fears. There's economic realities. There's health realities. Those are very, very real things. But there are two problems. The brain evolved in an era that was local and linear. Change was very slow. It happened over the course of many generations, 5,000 years passed between inventions, 20,000 years between fire and the wheel, et cetera. A very slow rate of change, linear growth, not exponential growth, and very local. Everything you dealt with is about a day's walk away. So we live in a world that's global and exponential. Global, it happens on, in China. We hear about it seconds later, and it impacts us you know, almost immediately as we're seeing and exponential, meaning the rate of change is incredibly fast. The brain cannot process this speed or this scale. So when it encounters exponential growth, which is what a virus does, so we're all watching the virus spread on these maps, that's exponential growth. The brain literally can't grok it. It looks at it. It doesn't have the machinery. We have what psychologists call a linear bias. But what it means is whenever we see exponential growth, we don't understand it at a biological level. And as a result, it produces massive amounts of uncertainty and anxiety automatically. What that means in the brain is shit tons of norepinephrine. Simultaneously, we evolved in an era of immediacy. Threats were the tiger and the bush variety, right? Like tiger's going to jump out of the bush. You either fight it now or you run away now or you're dead. That's what we evolved to deal with. We didn't evolve to deal with probabilistic dangers. What's a probabilistic danger? Oh my God, the economy might nosedive and I might lose my job. That's a probabilistic danger. The brain, it thinks, oh my God, this is a fight or flight situation. You're up against a tiger, hypervigilance, massive amounts of norepinephrine and cortisol get flushed into your system in the face of these dangers. And it can't go away until the danger is gone completely because that's how the system evolved, right? The tiger's gone. You can calm down. Why? Because it's really expensive to produce norepinephrine and cortisol for the body. It's very taxing. It's hard. You don't want to do it all the time, but in the face of what we're up against, it doesn't stop. So you actually have to step in and intervene with the fear, or you get the other half of what your clients are experiencing. So when you have too much norepinephrine and cortisol in your system, the brain wants to simplify options. So what do you get? You get very local and you're thinking you get very linear in your thinking. Creativity goes away, so you can't find far-flung connections between ideas. So this is one of the things that the people who are worried about losing their jobs are up against. This is what you're having a hard time seeing. You think, hey, man, you're up against economic hardship. Look for the opportunity. Get busy. Solve the problem. They're gripped. And because they're gripped, the very part of their thinking that would need to solve the problem they can't access it. It's not available. And on top of that, as you know, as you start to get depressed, you sort of get paralyzed. Everything is overwhelming because you have to bring all that fear into any problem you're trying to solve, right? If you're trying to solve a business problem, 
under normal situations, that's bad. If you're trying to solve a business problem with a probabilistic exponential danger on top of it, it's automatically triggering a vigilance response. Forget about it. You can't do it. The brain literally can't do it. That's what they're up against. So let me try to repeat to make sure I understand. So what's going on is because of the fear, and the fear is magnified because we are seeing an exponential risk every day when we open the papers, we are seeing a larger and larger and larger number for people who have contacted COVID-19 and people who are dying, right? This creates an increase in norepinephrine in our brain. And cortisol. And cortisol, right? So the combined chemicals in our brain, in a way, affect our cognition. We get less focus. We are unable to think clearly. And this is why so many people become paralyzed. So when people say, oh, I'm procrastinating, they are literally expressing a form of paralysis that's coming from fear. In flow, we talk about the challenge skill balance. Human beings perform at their very best. This is an easy way to trigger flow. When the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set, right? You want to stretch but not snap. It means that flow is designed for us to kind of like really push on our skills and really kind of get into it. And they say emotionally, hey, that flow channel, what they call it, between challenge and skills is sort of, it's not on, but it's very near the midpoint between boredom. There's not enough stimulation here and anxiety. Whoa, there's way too much stimulation. So all humans, as I said earlier, are optimized for challenge and skills. So oftentimes when you're talking about procrastination, what you're really talking about is an imbalance of the challenge skills balance. And so what I teach people is if the challenge is too hard, if you're feeling fear and you're overwhelmed, you have to chunk it down into bite-sized chunks. I'll give you a really simple example of this. You know this from traveling. When you're traveling and you're giving 10 speeches in a row and going from big meeting to big meeting, and it's the final leg of the trip and the flight's been delayed and you're exhausted and haven't slept in two days, I get through the airports by going, okay, Stephen, just get on the train. You get to the train, you get to the gate. Get on the train one step at a time, right? I chunk my problem down so my brain doesn't even think, oh, you got to get to the gate and get on the plane and then you can go to sleep. It thinks all you got to do is get to the train. That's the job, get to the train. And so I chunk it down because the challenge needs to get really, really, really small because my skills are massively depleted. The other side is not doing my work. I'm putting it off. I'm putting it off. Sometimes they're doing it because they're bored. The system was designed to work at its best. The reason you put off the term paper the night before is not because you're lazy. It's because your brain wants to be able to write that term paper when it's at your best, when you're most focused, interested, blah, blah, blah. It's just a bad idea to do it for performance because shit goes wrong. So I tell people, if that's the case, the challenge isn't hard enough, make it harder. I used to do this in my writing when I would have to write all these magazine articles. I would usually have to be writing four or five or six at once when I was starting out as a journalist to pay my bills. Some of them were really boring. So I would up the challenge level. I'd be like, okay, you have to write this article and somehow get it into Wired magazine, but you have to do it in the style of Charles Dickens. Or something like that, right? I just up the challenge level, make it fun, make it interesting, right? So the problem now is the opposite, right? There's so much fear in our system. The challenge is just too hard. So the reason you can't get up for the task of how do I reinvent my business in the face of a global pandemic that came out of nowhere, right? Like, oh my fucking God. So if you're dealing with that kind of issue, the level of fear is super high. And so Let's talk about solutions. We can do this really quickly with the Mind Valley audience because you're going to all get it. In the face of absolutely acute fear, like when you hear something like this many people are going to die today or this week, like something that just automatically redlines you, there are only really a couple of things that work in that situation. 
One of them is panoramic vision. So if you walk outside or look out a window and widen out your field of view as wide as it can go, you start to relax. And it happens automatically. And it's because when we are scared in fight or flight, we have very tight focus. We're looking at the predator that's trying to kill us. So when you look really, really, really wide, it automatically says, hey, look at that wild field of view. They must be calm. And interesting, I just learned this from Dr. Uberman, Andrew Uberman, who you know, and who's spoken at Mind Valley, who I have a research collaboration with. When you do this, processing speed in the brain actually speeds up four times. It's a like 4x faster processing speed with panoramic vision, which is kind of interesting. And it probably has a lot of flow ramifications, but I haven't been able to hook back up with Andrew to talk about it yet. So that will automatically calm you down. It's a really fast way. Another way to calm down very, very, very quickly is to inhale as much air through your nose as you possibly can. And then when you get to the very top, there's no room for any more. Do a really hard sniff and just suck it in. That also sort of does the same thing. It changes the gases signature in the brain and it basically calms you down. Or you can think about your favorite memory. Those are the three things that can systematically really work. But simultaneously, that's acute, right? The more important thing for the Mind Valley troop is this is going to last a while. So what's the preventative? And here, this is really super simple to everybody. The preventative, as we well know, are six things. These are the positive psychology basics. So you're going to give us six different ideas, right? Six different ways to get back in focus and flow. I'm going to give you six things that everybody should be doing to manage their state. And then I'm going to add in one final flow thing and then tell people that they should go check out Zero to Dangerous to go deeper. Let me just give you Stephen's website really quickly. It's zerotodangerous.com. Go check it out zero to dangerous.com. Okay, Stephen, back to you. Six things everybody should be doing. You know, positive psychology has spent 30 years trying to figure out how do you get stressed out people and turn them into happy people. And there's no easy answer here. It turns out you can't really do it super well, but there are six things that are foundational. And they're the only six tools that really work consistently over time. Three are on the energy side of the equation, having enough energy to meet the challenges at hand. You need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. That's just how the systems work. Every now and again, there are exceptions to that rule, but not many. Most of us, we need seven to eight hours of sleep at night. We need good hydration, good nutrition, and we need social support. And all those things are really basic. And I normally tell people, especially when I train peak performers, look, you can screw one of those up a day, right? You cannot get enough sleep at night, but if you've got good social support, if your team is there to help you out and your friends are really for you and you've got your food and your nutrition and your hydration right, you can get away with bad sleep or you can miss meals as long as you've slept well. But in a time of crisis, you don't want to skip any of them. You need all the energy you can get. So you have to double down on all those things. That's the first side. And the second side is the cognitive stuff. What do you do to reduce fear? Gratitude practices, mindfulness practices, and exercise. A five-minute gratitude practice, right? Either write down three things you're grateful for and turn one of them into a paragraph or write down 10 things you're grateful for and make sure you really feel the feeling of that gratitude. 11 to 20 minutes of breath work and any of the focusing practices trains up focus, of course, but also trains down reactivity, right? Puts a gap between thought and reaction or thought and feeling, really. 
and you know gives you more space to breathe, lowers cortisol levels, lowers norepinephrine levels, and finally exercise. And, and you're doing this not for health. You have your whatever your health protocol is, do that. But if you're not exercising, you need to be exercising 20 to 40 minutes until it gets quiet upstairs. And when it gets quiet upstairs, it's getting quiet upstairs because the part of your brain that is self-critical, that can get terrified, is shutting down. And other parts are sort of taking over. You're tiring out those parts of your brain. And it's an automatic reaction. It has a lot to do with kind of the front end of flow. It's known as exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. And normally, when I train people, I say, look, if you're going to be a peak performer, you have to do one of these a day right? You can pick gratitude, mindfulness, or exercise. Take your pick. I think in times of crisis, depending on how revved up you are, you have to do two or three. I have found even on days when I'm really like, I'm having good days, I'm feeling like I'm useful and I'm trying to help the world. My work's going well, my family's okay, all that stuff. If I'm like, oh, I don't, I can go watch television. I watch a movie tonight. I'm not going to meditate. I'm not going to you know, whatever, I can do that for a day, maybe. But the next day, you know, as the world comes back at me, my defenses are so weakened, I've stopped, like I'm done playing with it. I'm like, okay, every day I'm doing some gratitude work. I'm doing some meditation work. I'm getting some exercise. So I'm doing all three every day these days. And I'm also making sure I've got hydration, nutrition, social support, and proper sleep. Amazing. Oh, I love this. Okay. So the first one was social support. The second one was sleep, seven to eight hours. And then you put a bunch of items under cognition, mindfulness, gratitude, exercise. Was that three, four, and five? Yeah, that's exactly right. So one, two, and three is hydration, nutrition, sleep, and social support. Important thing about social support, we are practicing physical distancing. We should not be practicing social distancing. Reach out and talk to people. Because it's so foundational to how we feel. If you have a wide network or robust network, your brain believes you're safer. I have, and I'm sure we've all been doing this, but I have been reaching out and calling old friends, people I haven't seen in a while, just to check in once a day. I'm trying to make at least one to two phone calls a day. And I'm also saying, look, hey, I love you. I miss you. This is a COVID-free conversation. Unless you have a direct healthcare crisis that I need to intervene on to help, I want to hear about your life and I want to see you and I want you to see me, but I'm doing this to like take a break from that and try to get my head right. I also think it's a good time to have enforced media fasts. I mean, if people are having problems focusing, try fasting from the media unless there's a direct crisis that you're dealing with 24 to 48 hours and then try working, see how it feels then. So let me try to repeat for everyone, okay? So it's social support. Even if you can't get out of the house to meet someone, go virtual. Number two is seven to eight hours of sleep. Number three is hydration and nutrition. Number four is mindfulness. Number five, gratitude. And finally, exercise. Those were the six items. It's important to say gratitude. Five minutes, guys mindfulness, 11 to 20 minutes. That's what you need for the emotional and cognitive benefits. You can double down maybe in the beginning if you're really hyped up and you can get complicated and fancy Wim Hof breathing. Wim Hof breathing, by the way, will also improve cardiovascular function, which is something to know. You can sit at home and boost resilience and cardiovascular function by doing Wim Hof breathing or 
breath of fire of you for those of you who do yoga kind of thing. That research was done by Brian McKenzie, who I think you know. Amazing. So these are so useful. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us in the Mind Valley podcast. And look, you do such amazing work. I want to make sure that people know where to find you. So guys, if you want to learn with Stephen, I strongly recommend you check out zerotodangerous.com. Zerotodangerous.com. That's T-O and not the number two. Zerotodangerous.com. Now, let me just read you what it says on the website. It's about thriving during chaos, uncertainty, and overwhelm. And don't we all need to understand how to do it right now. The website is about how to unlock hyperfocus and flow to be your best while the world is at its worst. You learn to get more done in less time under greater pressure, finish your wildly productive workday, relax, and be free to live your life. And you know, this is so important to me, Stephen. I'm so excited that you're doing this because today I was having a call with some 20 managers from my team. And one of the things that one of our key managers expressed is that so many people in her team, so she runs a team that basically has people who maintain virtual tribes of students. So we have a quarter million students studying online, and we have these people called tribe leaders or facilitators, and they are connecting with the students and helping these students learn. And this team is really burnt out, right? They've been working crazy long hours. They are really burnt out, and they are supporting other people. So they can't stop because they are afraid that if they stop, that's another person they can't help. And I think in this scenario, there are so many people who are in this situation where they could really use this type of education, how to get more done in less time under greater pressure, because they're in a position where they are helping heal, they're helping serve, and it's just so critical during this time. So thank you for producing this. I'm so excited about enrolling some of my people on this. Thank you, Vishen. And if you enjoyed this Mind Valley podcast, go ahead and leave us a review, and I'll see you next week. Take care, guys. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you really, really want a life that exceeds your expectations, you need to be ferocious. Cutler's books, probably the author I've spent the most time reading in the last five years. I mean, Rise of Superman, Abundance. You need to train up this extra gear, and it's nothing people are talking about. A lot of what we think about peak performance have more to do with states of consciousness more than skill sets. I'm going to break down the neuroscience. I'm going to break down the psychology. I'm going to break down the physiology. I'm going to get to the basic level of the tools so you'll know how the system works and be able to work with it. The habit of ferocity is is exactly that. It's sort of teaching you to be in attack mode. You're not attacking the world. You're not attacking anybody else. You're attacking your dreams. It's teaching you how to kind of always compete with yourself and win. Sign up for a free masterclass with me and Stephen Kotler. It's happening on Mind Valley this week. I'll see you there. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, 
Take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.